Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We are glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. We are uh, going through uh, Peter's first letter, uh, and uh, we are uh, right in chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, going through uh, verse 25 through the rest of that chapter. Uh, Peter uh, says that starts off by saying, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when He is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as He who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as Father, the one who judges all people impartially according to your deeds, live in reverent fear during your time of exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. Let, let, let's pray together for a moment. Lord, I am praying for your spirit to just continue to speak to us, soften our hearts, and help us indeed to see the the hope and the love that you have for each one of us and the call to share that. Thank you again for your guidance and your love. Amen. This passage of Scripture, he begins by saying uh, Jesus has kind of set us out and that we, like obedient children, aren't to be conformed to the desires of this world. It reminds me of uh, sending my, my children off to school for the first time. You remember that? Sending your kids off to kindergarten? And that first day of, of, of their very first day, their, of their very first year of public school, we drive them, right? Or we walk them, right? They're not getting on the bus, not the first day. No, the first day, we're going to wave, we're going to hug them, we might even walk in and show them the teacher. We're going to do everything we can to, to say farewell, and then we're going to do our best to hide the tears while we walk away, <laughs> right? right, right. But we, we know in that moment, as we let them go, we are hoping and we are praying that everything that we taught them in just their first few years of life, such that, so that that sweet child, that wonderful, loving child, will not be too tarnished by 
public school, that they will, of course, continue to be that wonderful, sweet child we know they are when they are in the classroom and they are, when they are with their peers. We are hoping as we let them go into the world that everything that we have done to train and raise them up to this point stays and sticks and, and is reflected in who they are and what they're going to be. And so Peter says to those who have been scattered, and, and we, we saw last week when I read that first verse that they are, have indeed been dispersed to all areas of the world, that he says you have been sent out and that you are now like obedient children who, who God has hoped will indeed live out how God has called us to live in this world. Just before he uses that obedient children uh, emphasis, though, he says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now if, now, if your Bible has a little footnote on it, it's really fun to read that footnote to see what he means, what he actually says. The, uh, the translators love to just make things make sense for us when there's an old imagery. But literally, he says, prepare, he says, he says, gird up your loins of your mind. You know, when they wore their robes, and they needed to be in a hurry, they would have to hike them up and tie them up and, and gird them and put them into their belt. And so he is using that imagery to say, hey, it's time to go. You have to get ready. It's like getting your kids ready for school every other day other than that first day. You know, at first, it's nice and it's wonderful. Let me help you put your, your arm in the sleeve. Oh, this is great. Let me tie your shoes for you. This is wonderful. But as the years progress... It becomes, what do you mean you can't find your shoe? <laughs> right, right? It becomes, you got to get your socks on. The bus is here. <laughs> it, becomes, right, it becomes this cold kind of, wait a minute, I know it was nice yesterday, but it's snowing today. What do you mean you left your coat at school? Right? Like, like it becomes that kind of, like, what is happening here? And so he says, you have to prepare yourself for action. Gird up the loins is what he says of your mind. Uh, put on your shoes, wear your belt. The way my mom said it when I was a kid is, hike up your britches. <laughs> like, like, it is time to get going. That kind of phrase just makes me laugh because my cousin lived with me for a while. It was during that time when he thought it was really fun to wear his pants really low and uh, just barely hugging his hips. He wore a belt, but the belt just kept it off his knees. And so, like, it was just one of those, like, but it was funny because if he was in a hurry, if we were playing basketball, for instance, he was constantly hiking them up, girding up the loins, if you will. You know, the kind of thing we hope the plumber does every time just before they go to work, right? As we just, <laughs> uh, see, Peter has a sense of humor here. He really does. He tells, he tells the church, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for the work and the task that you have before you. And so this is his way of saying we, we, are, we are set with a purpose. And there's preparation. And there's work that we, as we do as Christians as we go into this world so that there are the right practices and habits attained that set us and prepare us for this world. I know right now in this season, one of the things we have done is say we need to be a praying people. And so you have been invited to uh, take part from Easter a couple weeks ago all the way to Pentecost in praying in this practice together, doing this on a daily basis. And so we've handed out 
their prayer journals. We recognize that reading Scripture is important. And so every week you have an option, uh, a way of entering into a near-daily practice of reading Scripture and seeing how they relate together through our intersections uh, inserts. We recognize that there are practices and habits as Christians that are necessary. When you come to worship today, on a day like Sunday, it is great. And it's great for me, too. I don't get to be the Christian God has called me to be without the influence of each and every one of you. It makes a difference in who I am and how I develop. When I look back on my life at the people who have influenced me, of course, I can go back to my childhood, to those people who helped me get ready. And, and, and I can say, myself, oh, yeah, they have made a difference. But I can also think in ministry of the various ways in which I saw service and I saw practice and I saw words of encouragement and I saw love and I saw people do things that blew my mind in terms of how they cared and loved for one another and the community. And it has deeply affected who I am as a Christian and as a pastor. And so even, even the weekly practice of worship not only affects who we are, but indeed encourages and disciples one another to be the Christians God has called us to be. And so he uh, continues on in uh, this book and he says, Be holy, for I am holy. This is what is written. So there is indeed the call to be holy. And the Church of the Nazarene, we make a pretty big deal about that call to be holy. We recognize in the, in the faith experience of each and every one of us that we recognize that we come to a point at some point in our lives where we say, Okay, God, I believe. Or we say, okay, Jesus, I believe, please forgive me. Or we say, okay, God, I believe, now, now help me figure out what happens next. Like there's, there's a faith moment where we say, okay, I believe now. And it, this makes a difference in my life. But along the way, after making that first faith statement, that prayer of, okay, God, please uh, uh, let me into your family. I, I, I believe in you and I want to do my best to follow you. That along the way, there's a learning that happens along the way that God's Holy Spirit starts to work in our life and to make us more and more the way that God wants us to be, that He is indeed the word that we use in the church of Nazareth is sanctifying us, a word that means making us more holy, making us, conforming us to God's will, to God's image, and what He wants. Not turning us into God's, that would be some fringe something or another, but he is helping us to be everything he created humanity to be. And holiness is always done by the power of the Holy Spirit to free us from the power of sin in our life, to fill us with more and more love for God and for one another. And I want to talk a little bit of what that means to be holy. And it is essentially, as we pray every single week, praying, Thy will be done again and again and again. There is a personal morality to this. There is a uh, sense in which uh, living a holy life means my heart, my will is 100% sold out to God and I recognize that there are things that I'm not going to do because I know it doesn't bring glory to God and I know it's, it's against God's will in my life. There is, there's a personal call on that. But holiness does not mean when I have attained that that anyone else who hasn't yet is a lesser Christian or something like that. Holiness does indeed place a call in our life, but there's a continual love, uh, call to love 
those around us. And, and, and the call to be holy never sets us above another person. For holiness also is involved in our interpersonal relationships and how we interact with one another. And Jesus' answer to what the greatest commandments are in Scripture, He says you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's that whole 100% sold out. I'm not doing anything God doesn't want me to do. But the second one that's just like it is love your neighbor as ourself. Without a doubt, God desires and calls each of us to love each other. In fact, when we even think about who God is, the very nature of God is this. God is an interpersonal relationship. God is, by definition, relational. We call Him in the three-in-one, in the Trinity, in the triune nature of God, that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united together in perfect unity, will, purpose, And those three acting in concert together for our redemption, for the creation and sustaining of the world, for for the making holy of this world, that is God's continual action and it is the three of them in perfect harmony. And then we call that God. He is by very definition relational. To be holy as He is holy means when we see sin in the world that we realize this isn't right. And so it, of course, includes having concerns for that which is wrong in our world. When we recognize that, oh, there is, there's concern for money that is just absolutely uh, overriding any concern for people that exists in this world. There is a concern for violence that is happening in this world that just doesn't make sense and is absolutely tragic. And there's something wrong here. And we pray and we search for ways in which God's will could be done in those kinds of concerns, wherever there is disparity, wherever there is injustice. That the call to holiness incorporates a personal, a social, and an interpersonal aspect of this. So his call, be holy as I am holy, is because he recognizes that God the Father has sent us out into a world that is indeed broken. And he says to them to live your lives here in reverent fear. While they are in their different areas that aren't close to home, that aren't among those whom that they know, while they're scattered throughout Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, as it says in verse 1, while they're scattered throughout, he says, live your lives in reverent fear. Now, we know what fear is. That is, I'm afraid, so I'm just going to toe the line and make sure no one gets me. But that is not the kind of fear he means. He means a reverent fear, a kind of like, I respect you enough and don't want things to go wrong. I'm going to do whatever I can for you. It's the fear we have to, uh, uh, for, for uh, our, our parents. When our parents say, you better do this or else, okay, okay, but we know they have their, our best interests in mind. It, it's the reverent fear we have for former teachers or, or parents or for God. It, it, it's when we say, hey, I know that there is a great expectation and I want to do the best I can. Someone, had, someone who uh, was very afraid, I've heard this actually a couple times, very afraid of public speaking, getting in front of crowds, has asked me before, do you get scared or nervous when you come up to preach? And I said very early on, yes, I did all the time. And, and uh, oftentimes it was because, yeah, I don't know how people are going to respond to me. I don't know what people are going to think. And it was hard to separate 
the, the message I knew I had to say and, and the necessity and the, and the impact I wanted that to make with how I thought it was going to be received. But now, of course, the more and more I've done this, of course, I've gotten a little bit more comfortable. But there is still a kind of fear every time I come up here. And that is not because of who might be listening or who might fall asleep or who might, or who might uh, get upset or whatever, but it's because I've been entrusted with the Holy Scriptures to communicate God's plan of salvation for us. And that is, of course, a huge task that I don't want to be unfaithful to. And it's a huge task that I really hope everyone here and everyone watching and might watch later on, I want them to recognize there is a truth in here for me and that helps us understand that God's Spirit is at work today in our life for our salvation. And that's a huge task. And so we enter into that. As, as, as ministers, as people called to be faithful to God, uh, with a kind of fear. I want to be faithful because this might be the only moment that we have. We, we have all been entrusted in our lives to live in such a way that God's will would be done through us. When we allow for that and ask for God's help in that, we are living in reverent fear because every relationship we have, every moment we have, we don't know if that opportunity, that open door God has given us to share who we are, what God has done in our life, we don't know if we're going to get that opportunity again. But we want our lives to reflect heaven on earth. As we pray, your will be done on heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And so our hope and our prayer in each moment is, God, let your holiness work through me to love and to care and share your plan with those around me. He says to us, because of this, we, have, we know that we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your ancestors. And I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about what it means to be ransomed from the feudal conduct inherited from our ancestors. We might ask ourselves, well, what kind of feudal conduct is this? Well, the exercise of power over faithfulness. I have to have my way, and it's my way or else, and, and if someone else has to get stomped by, so be it. We've seen that in the likes of King David. When he desires Bathsheba, and it's his might and his power and his privilege as king, and it doesn't matter who he hurts. It's when we live according to extraneous rules. When we say, okay, God has called me to holiness, and, and I have met these certain convictions that have come to my life, and you haven't had those convictions yet, but you'll get there someday, and, and I hope you do, because it's a great place over here, but until then, you know, we just look down at someone who hasn't perhaps gone as far as we think they should have, or as far as we think we have. We see that in the lives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law constantly interacting with Jesus who are saying, but wait, 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 you didn't meet this requirement yet. Or, or wait, 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 we think the best way of, uh, of living by the rule of God is by also taking this additional step, living according to extraneous rules, often is the feudal conduct of some of the ancestors. The minor prophets in the Scriptures 
would remind us it's forgetting the have-nots in society. For they call us that true faithfulness is taking care of the widow. It's taking care of the orphan. It's taking care of the immigrant. It's taking care of the poor among you. And if you don't do that, then you have forgotten the grace God has given on you and where He has led you. And so forgetting those who have nothing is futile conduct inherited from the ancestors. And then I would suggest another one. This comes to us, I think, from the kings and from the chronicles. Is being more so concerned with our survival that we forget the mission of God. I want to explain this just a little bit. Whenever we get so concerned with preserving the status quo or preserving what we know to be that we forget the mission, there's a problem. One of the things, this, uh, there, this, this, this can happen in local churches. This can happen in general churches. This can happen in entirely different entities or uh, enterprises. Uh, in a local church, this could happen. Now, I'm going to give you an example that has to do with this church, but is is a fine example. I'm not, it's not a critique. One of the things that we want to do as a church, and we've had some conversation in the board, is we want to be faithful with the funds given for the church. And so one of the things I was very glad to be able to say at our last annual meeting was some, some things that we are setting up to, uh, some uh, purchases that were made to help uh, with this church that uh, very glad to say we are able to do this without affecting ministry budget at all. Whether it was the new, uh, the new chairs that aren't torn up, whether it's uh, the new video screen that's actually hiding behind the screen, and once the electrician comes, it'll be set up, uh, it, it, uh, and some other projects that we kind of are currently dreaming about and talking about. Like I said, we're, we're, we have eyes on the, uh, uh, on the parking lot and, and some other things as well. As we thought about those kinds of expenses and stuff, one of the things we also want to do is we want to be faithful for down the road as well. And so one of the things that we are currently navigating as a board is some of the money in our savings account saying, okay, can we find a higher yield just to be faithful with it right now? So it isn't just sitting, waiting until the next cost, but be faithful so that when the next one comes, we have the funds for that on a rainy day or, or an off season. That's part of what we do. We want to be faithful what's been given. If at any point in time, this board or a future board down the road were to say, Here's a great opportunity for ministry. Oh, but we can't touch the rainy day fund. Here's a great opportunity to do something for God, but we can't touch money that's been saved. Then we've missed the point, right? And it, the whole purpose of reserving is so that we can be as faithful as we can with the monies received for the ministry and the call that God has put on this church. Anytime a church says, I'm more concerned about my survival than about being faithful to what God has called, there is a problem. Our church is not in that situation. Uh, if the general church ever says, oh, here are some issues we have, and we need to make sure we preserve that for the safety and security of our denomination, and have forgotten the mission, that becomes a problem. Any organization that does that, if a nation says, oh, uh, we need to make sure we do X, Y, and Z, even though it's against our ideals and against who we want to be, and it doesn't meet the purpose and the call of that nation, then uh, it's just, just for their survival, but doesn't meet the very heart of who they're supposed to be, there's a problem. It actually begs the question, is it worth surviving at that point if they forget the mission? And as Christians... 
who have believed that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We are people who know survival is not based on running away from death. Survival is based on being faithful to God, the very God who overcomes and defeats death. And we find again and again in the Kings and the Chronicles, leaders who said, we're turning away from God, we're making allegiances with people God didn't want us to do, just try to preserve our rule a little bit longer, just to survive a little bit longer. Peter says, we have been ransomed from the feudal conduct inherited from our ancestors. We have been ransomed. Ransom means to reunite us with God. That, what, that which might separate us no longer does. He uses a Jewish illustration. One that used the sacrificial system of cleansing that, that would unite them with the holiness of God. Oh, we feel like we've gone away from God. Let us make this sacrifice and God might look on us with, uh, with grace and might share His holiness with us. And so he uses that illustration and uses Jesus as the sacrificial lamb for that illustration to show that indeed that God has desired to unite us with His holiness. And that by, by talking about Jesus as the lamb, he is saying, you have been ransomed. And the way, the way I like to think of that is, is through the words of Romans. The wages of sin is death. That our sin has led to death, but God has said death doesn't have the final word. Not only in a real resurrection for those who believe, for each and every one of us, but also so that today we don't have to live in the paralyzing fear of death or enslaved to the goal of survival. But we can trust in God because Christ has overcome death. That ransom has been Paid to use their words. By trusting in God, we have found that uh, uh, He has indeed purified our souls, is what He says in verse uh, 21 and 22. We can trust in God who has raised Him from the dead, and they have purified their souls because they have brought their souls close to the Son of God who does that work by the power of His blood. It is the purification symbolism found in the sacrificial system. They would sacrifice and they'd be seen as purified. And so he uses Jesus' death on the cross as a way of saying, so in the same way we are united and brought close to God. In our own language, it might be like this. It might be a way of saying, there is nothing that separates us from God. There is no distance. There is no sin. There is, there is nothing that God has not said, I still desire you to be in my family. I want to offer forgiveness. I want to offer grace. I still love you. There is no gap. There is no distance. Jesus has not crossed or traversed in order to bring us closer to God. There is nothing that separates from the grace of God or the call to live into that grace. His love is for us right now as you are. As you are. We are called to holy living. And the greatest expression of holy living is to love one another. John Wesley is, is our 
kind of theological forebear who, who helped us realize that the call to holy living that he felt the, the church in his time was going away from was borrowed from and was indeed explained from the very early church. And he made a big point of saying, hey, we are called to holy living. We're not just going to say, okay, I believe and go on with life as if nothing else matters, but we are going to take seriously the words of Peter and others and, and live the way God wants us to live in this world. And people would ask him again and again, well, what do you mean by holy living? Oh, what if you do this? What if you do that? What if you do this? And again and again, he found himself in this constant struggle of uh, people trying to get him to say what Christians have to do in this way of, oh, I've attained holy living and you haven't yet. And it became this kind of like John Wesley was struggling against this kind of like tiered system of Christianity. He's not looking for that at all. All we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's it. But after believing in Jesus Christ, he puts a call upon our life to to live a, a life pleasing to him. And so he would say, if you think I mean anything about holiness other than more love, you are mistaken. That he would say, let your heart be so filled with love that there is no room for sin. There is no room for anything else. It's like a child going out to eat at a restaurant and a child gets their own drink and their parent says, you can have a soda. And they say, yes. And they look and the, and the parents distract, you know, getting the napkins or something. And they realize they didn't say no caffeine this time. And so they get excited and they go to the Coke or the Mountain Dew or whatever it is. And they fill that up and it goes all the way to the brim, right? Because the kid is so, ex- so excited that they finally get a soda without qualifications. It's filled to the brim. You can see it over the lip. The, the friction just barely came in. And they're like, yes. And they say, oh, I forgot the ice. And so they go to the ice machine, <laughs> and they put the ice, and it explodes all over the place, right? right? You've all seen that before from a little child who forgot to put the ice in first. The cup was so filled with soda, there wasn't room for anything else. Jesus, or John Wesley said in recognizing the call to holiness that comes from Jesus and the Scriptures, that perhaps holiness is simply this, that if we might fill our hearts with love for God and for one another. There would not be room for anything else that would detract or keep us from God or one another. There would be no room for sin. No wonder, then Peter says, you've been purified and you have been purified, so now love each other. Show genuine mutual love, verse 22 says. Love one another deeply from the heart. It is indeed the definition of holiness to show genuine affection and love from the very center of our being. And the faith and the hope that we have that he shares is indeed that our perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. He says that. Verse 24 warns us of our own mortality, like the grass that withers, dies, never takes root again so can be the temporary nature of our lives. Yet this passage in Isaiah is part of a broader passage. It is a part of a passage that we usually read the first Sunday of Advent. That passage in Isaiah is a passage that John the Baptist quotes when he says, I have been called to make straight paths for the Lord. And so he shares that he is, that the Lord is making straight paths in the wilderness and in the rocky areas so that you can actually go and travel the way God wants you to travel. 
And after that verse, he says, All flesh is like grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. No matter how rocky or difficult the path is, the Lord is with us along the way, and the call to love is still there. I was pleasantly surprised by um, someone I met about a month ago doing some hospice work. I, uh, I met this lady, and um, after my visit with her, I was getting ready to leave, and she just said, I love you. And I said, uh, thank you. And like, I, I, was, I was surprised. I was shocked. But I had just met her and uh, offered some care to her and spoke with her. And, out, and she told me, and she, uh, told me that she loved me on my way out. And, uh, and I was shocked, not because I haven't heard that before. I have heard that before from people who I've just met. Some people are just wired that way. They meet someone they make a connection with, and they express that love right away. The, when I first came here, that person was Mona. My first Sunday here, I came and I preached and I talked and I visited a little bit. And Mona says, I love you. And I was like okay, like, okay, all right. Like, I'm just getting to know you, but I'm sure I'll come to say I love you too. But like, it was a, but like, I know that God loves and fills our heart that I saw both in Mona, who many of you know, uh, and, and in this lady too, that love just flows out. I thought, how wonderful is that? That that is part of the call of God that we would be so filled with the love of God that we can't help but share the love He has given and how we express and interact with those around us. This, This word of good news that Peter shares with us is that God is absolutely crazy about each and every one of us, welcoming us into His family and promising the power of His Holy Spirit to go with us, to continue to shape and mold us as we go out into a world with trepidation. He says, nonetheless, you are the beacon of hope. You are the beacon of light. You are the source by which others might come to know who God is and how much He loves them. And that this is indeed the good news for each and every one of us, and no matter what happens, if the grass withers, if Christ is crucified, His Word endures forever, and there is a promise and there is a hope for every single one of us. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord, for this day. Thank You, Lord, for Your hope and the good news that You have overcome the power of death that you have overcome the power of sin and that we can be set free and we can love and uh, magnify your name and that, Heavenly Father, your spirit will continue to work in us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for who you are and what you are doing in each and every one. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us in each moment and each day to just say, your will be done. Your will be done. And help us to be faithful to that. I believe your spirit is with each and every one of us, offering forgiveness and offering us power to live in your grace. Thank you for this. Amen.
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.